Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Friday, everybody, and welcome to 2023. Uh, my name is Indy, and that gentleman next to me is Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting, and he's in 2023. And welcome to Indie Game Business. Today, we've got Alyssa Sweetman, and we are going to be talking about a plethora of things. Basically, it says charity, but I'm sure we'll be discussing, we'll be touching many, many, many things during this podcast. So welcome, Alyssa. Hello. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'm going to start off with like the thing that I'm most excited about that's been like three years in the works and is finally live. Uh, we have free online classes now for indie game business. Um, thanks to that- our wonderful friends at Tripwire. Tripwire presents, um, yes. So, yeah, go to indiegameBusiness.teachable.com or links in the you know newsletter that I just sent out, whatever. But we've got the first two are basically how to find a publisher and then the second one is how to evaluate your publisher and contract they're quick short nice little bite-sized chunks completely free there's Mm -hmm. feedback for god's sakes if you take the courses give us feedback because we want to do more of these and grow them and all that kind of good stuff and yay online i want to know jay really quick was that just like a little subliminal thing you just did because you were talking and you pulled up your pills and you shook them a little bit your prescription bottle and then you set it back down i'm like i was moving them and that was (laughs) habit but i probably need to take one momentarily anyway um (laughs) get addicted to indie game business uh, Alyssa, welcome to the show let's start where we always love starting tell us how you originally got into games and then walk us through your career up to this point so i have been playing games for as long as i can remember my dad was really into technology and i was one of the really lucky kids especially as a girl that my first of all my dad wanted a son so i think that made it really easy and i was the first (laughs) born um but technology was something that he was always very excited about and so i had a playstation one when it came out I had a Sega CD when that came out. He had um, a Sega Game Gear that we played on. And he loved buying old parts for computers. And so he taught me how to build a computer at a very young age. Although my knowledge and what's best to put in a computer kind of ends after 1998. So I lost interest in it because it was a lot for someone my age. And... So always been into gaming and I've never been a huge fan of online gaming. So I didn't get into a lot of people talk about their early childhood and playing online games. I was the Sims 2. I could play Sims 2 for probably three days straight but without sleeping. 
when I was younger. Um, love the Crash Bandicoot. So sideways flash platformer type games were definitely my jam. And later on, I moved in with my grandmother and my uncle built my cousins a custom arcade that was just essentially a computer with an emulator, but it was an arcade stand. And it was incredible. And so we were always playing on that. So as I get older, I still, I had a gaming PC. I still had consoles. I still played video games. When I was in college, um, the gentleman I was dating at the time suggested that I stream on Twitch. Now, his motivation was thinking, I'm a girl, therefore I'll make a bunch of money. Um, That is not what happened. Shortly after getting on Twitch, I was in some gaming groups and I started using Twitter because I was on Twitch. I was everything I read said if you don't use Twitter, you can't make it on Twitch at the time. So I got on Twitter, and then this group reached out. I was like, "Hey, you want to join our gamer group?" And I was like, "Sure." They're like, "All right, great, fill out this application." And I was like, "Excuse me," but I did it anyways. And they did some really cool stuff. They were fundraising for nonprofits. This is before Tiltify existed, and. Their other mission was to connect veterans with civilians in a space where everyone understood that veterans were looking to connect with civilians. So it was a really great space. And that's kind of like how I got into gaming and then online gaming and internet communities. And then I met my former boss, um, Andrew Schroeder. A lot of people would know him as a gentleman who was one of the founding members of GDQ, who later went to work on at Twitch. And so he actually reached out to me through a Twitter DM because we had conversed about charity before and was like, hey, you should consider applying for this role I have. And I was like, I lived in Texas and like most people who grew up in Texas, I was anti-California. So I was like, uh, can I work remotely? And he said, no, but I still went through the process at the time. I was a second grade teacher and I was like, sure, why not? You know, go to California and see the Twitch office. I'm not going to accept this job. So I did all of that. Went out there and I was like, there's no way I got that job. It was exactly kind of what you would expect of a tech environment. Um, And those early days of Twitch, it was very bro culture. It was very easy to feel that walking around. I was like, there's no way I even got the job. First of all, I showed up in a collared shirt and I printed my resumes to give to the people who were interviewing me. I was more dressed up than my interviewers. And I was like, "This this is a whole other world. There's no way they're hiring me. Well, I get back to school and like three days later, I get a call and they're offering me a job. And I'm like, what? How did that happen? Um, So I kind of looked at it as an adventure and just went on to it. And that's how I ended up working in the video game industry. I'll say the Twitch office in San Francisco is much more unassuming than I thought it would be. Because where we usually stay for GDC we literally have to walk by it going down to the conference. And one of the guys I was staying with said, Hey, did you see the Twitch office? And I was like, no, where, what did you like have to look inside before you see like the Twitch sign in there? And I'm like, I had no idea we were even next to it, but I was, ex- I don't know what I was expecting. Like this big gigantic tw- purple Twitch I think, thing. I think a lot of people assume Twitch is a massive office because it's a, it's a business that serves a ton of people. So therefore their office must be big and they must have a campus, uh, but it's not. Twitch, uh, Twitch has a rule and I'm still under NDA since of course I, it's been less than two years since I left about how many employees they have, but it's not as big as you might think. It's in much, much smaller. 
than you might anticipate in terms of number of employees. I was I, I was I was very surprised. I was looking for something very large when he was like, I mean, he's like, how can you miss it? I'm like, I have no idea, but you know, I'm I'm really good at missing things sometimes. Yeah. So talk to us, I mean, a little about so why aside from the obvious stuff, yes, you should be integrating charity into your games because it's helpful to the world and sick kids and veterans and dogs and cats and everything else. But aside from that. You know, aside from the obvious aspects of this, why should developers care? What is the big deal? And we'll get into the social impact stuff a little later as well, but but why? I mean, simply put, they'll make more money. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think of charity, social impact, diversity. They think of all of those things as feel good. And when you start to think of something as feel good, your business brain turns off. Oh, we should do this because it's the right thing to do. I mean, sure, but that's how you end up with like random nonprofits or random programs that don't quite fit with your company. And you're like, why didn't it do as well? It's because you still have to approach it with a business mind and you still have to make decisions that are best for your business. But the reason, like the biggest reason is that um, it can bring players back to your game. It can increase retention. It can get people excited about your game, can lighten your brand, and you can make money. More of it. And and that is absolutely key to do this. So during development, during marketing, during launch, it's like, so how do how does a dev studio plan for this? You know, what what do they need to do to you know, integrate charity support into the game and their marketing overall? So there is, first I should probably start by saying that if you're a small developer and you're at a small studio that doesn't have like a massive team to do legal review, um, find somebody to consult to help you do it right. Um, there's often people will get stuck in doing something that could potentially legally harm them because they were doing it for good. But there is a lot of laws around charity and the way you sell charity. So that's number one. Number two is a lot of people, when they think of doing a charity activation, they think of thinking, oh, I have to give up a hundred. I have to add in build time. I have to give a hundred percent of proceeds. And I'm going to use Blizzard's BCRF example. So um, Blizzard's BCRF example is is really interesting because nobody expected it to do 12 million. And, um, but Blizzard has a massive player base and everything Blizzard does, people want to collect it. Those, that community are collectors. So they're, they're a really good audience to continually do nonprofit related things. And so when that blew up, they were doing 100% of proceeds. But the reality is, is you don't have to do 100% of proceeds. Would the charity prefer it? Of course. It, we're in a um, money-driven society, so absolutely. But if you say to the charity, we're going to give you 50%, they're just going to be excited that you're going to do it. Um, it is not as easy to get a game developer to do a charity activation in their game because they have to build it. They have to scope it out. They have to code it. They have to design it. So there's a lot of steps in there. And so I think a charity, all of the ones I know I work with, would, would be happy to do a percentage of versus 100%. Um, for a game, I'm going to use Blizzard because it's just an easy example everyone can understand. Their audience is so great, they could pull things out of their vault. They don't even have to make new stuff. They can pull stuff out of their vault. 
they can resell it. They can do a percentage of it to charity and a percentage of them to that to them. For smaller indie game devs, the way to think about it is, you know, you have to manage how well you're, how often you're putting in-game items to sell, but special events can be really helpful for you. Black History Month, Women's History Month, um, Pride, Mental Health Month, Transgender Day of Visibility. There's tons of um, cultural moments that you can lean into. And I know the narrative is to, to stand outside of those, but if you're just getting started, those are great places to get started, to get your feet wet, and to also learn what you're doing um, and what other people are doing at the same time. All right. So when you say 100% of proceeds, and you know we see this with a lot of charity work outside of games as well, break down what that means. Is that like all money coming in? Is that like net revenue? Is that some random number that comes from somewhere else? But how do, how is the definition of how much money is given outlined? So the, you'll enter into an agreement. And again, I should say, I'm not a lawyer um, as, as we say, um, but you'll enter into what's called a commercial co-venture agreement. And a commercial co-venture agreement basically says that both businesses agree they're entering into a commercial situation in which they both agree to the terms. That's that's the simplest way to explain it. If you're using some another business's IP brand or licensing for commercial purposes, you do have to have one of these. So, um, for example, let's say we are we're going to make up a game. I have. Alyssa's Play World as an example for a game. And I have 100,000 new players and I can sell in, in-game items that people can place in their houses. I just have my team design a cute, we'll say, wall art piece and you can purchase it for 99 cents. Um, the way you communicate is agreed upon before you do anything. So how it's phrased is actually a part of the commercial agreement because you have to agree on that language. For nonprofits, they have a special layer of transparency that's required of them. So people like to say the word proceeds, but you actually wouldn't be able to say proceeds. You would need to say, um, it's better to be super specific. So if I was giving 50 cents for everything purchased, I would say for every one of the, for every art virtual art piece that you can put in your house that is sold, 50 cents will be donated up to, and then you have to say the maximum that's donated unless it's uncapped. And then the length of the promotion if the item is staying up afterwards. So all of those things, most nonprofits will actually help work you through in answering. Um, you can't say like proceeds, revenue, profit, because those are all really big language unless you work in accounting or you went, you've had some training where you understand the difference between all of those. So you actually have to be really specific. Uh, and the answer is like, how much is too little? I mean, one cent is probably too little. You got to work with your threshold. If you're a mega company, you know, your user base might expect you to do more than 50%. They might say like 60 or 70 and they might be the threshold for a smaller game studio 30, 40, 50% might be a really good range. But again, you know, all of these things are worked out even before you get to the point where it goes live. All right, so the Blizzard thing is a wonderful example. And you brought up Sims, and that's another good example. All of these different games, I mean, and I know I gave a ton of money over the years every time Blizzard put out a new pet or mouth that proceeds went to something, I bought it. Um, 
a lot of this sounds like such a no-brainer, especially when you have DLC in a game. Why aren't more companies doing it? I mean, I'll be, I mean, recently, the latest stuff on, Dan and I are talking about Fortnite, um, there was like a Mr. Beast skin. And with all the charity work that he does, I was completely surprised that that money or coins or whatever was going to it wasn't actually going to a charity. And I'm starting to think now if Epic has ever done like Fortnite skins that go to a charity. But why they did don't for we... one time? They, they only did? did it one time when Russia invaded Ukraine was the only time. And everyone, everyone reaches out to me, get me in touch with Epic. I said, Epic's not going to do anything with you. And they're like, how do you know? I said, it took another country invading another country to get them to activate. And Epic is the most profitable business. Like they, it's bragged about everywhere, right? Like we can say this, they're one of the most profitable businesses. In fact, they would probably be even more profitable. But again, when you think of doing good, you don't think of profit. You don't, th you don't think of those things. There's a huge psychology around social impact. Deloitte did a study a few years, like not even a few years ago, last year or the year before, that said 60% of business owners and um, executives believe that social impact is the future. I'm making a pre I made a prediction a couple of years ago that within 10 years, there will be no social impact teams. There will just be a person who's like deeply understanding and of different types of things on a marketing team because social impact will be marketing. If you, if I think back to my childhood, do you remember Tom's? Those sh yeah, yeah, yeah. burlap shoes. Those are the, they were, when they first came out, they were ugly and uncomfortable. And when you bought them, you spent like 80 bucks, but it also sent a pair of shoes to someone else. Do you know how many times every time I, someone would be like, oh, those Tom's are cool. Every person would repeat that because when you're making a decision to purchase something for yourself, particularly you can think about women too. Women um, tend to spend money on other people, their friends, their family, their children, but buying something for themselves is really hard. Um, if you think about it, it's much easier to buy something if you know it's going to help someone else. Budweiser did a thing where if you bought a case of beer, you know, it sent water. They sent so much water to where they were aiming to send water. And um, 70%, something like over 77% of consumers are that weren't going to purchase a product will purchase a product if there's something charitable or social impact tied to it. That is amazing. Mm. Yeah. And, and also well, coming, coming from a charity perspective, because I'm a community manager for a charity, um, whenever we are working with somebody, of course, it's the money, you know, it's the, if you want to do that kind of thing where, you know, 50% of the proceeds or whatever, but also just the exposure and the support behind it is huge, right? So we pot would potentially partner with somebody regardless of if they give us money, just if they would help us with exposure as well, which is just definitely another direction. There's, you know, um... For exposure, there's the UN has a pro the climate change program, and I meet with them from time to time to see how it's doing. And when I say the climate change program, they have a specific group of people working with game companies that are helping them. And their things that they do are not even about money. They're what activity can you put in your game to help people understand? Games are so important, um, so, so important, because I'm the type of person when I consume media if there's something I'm curious about, if it is real or why in the real world, for example, I was watching a TV show last night and the phrase struck a deal came up. And I was like, where did that phrase even come up? What does that mean when you strike something? 
And it's a derivative of cut a deal, which came from a time period in which when people agreed on a deal, they would slaughter an animal and have a feast together. Huh. And I was like, of course that came from something way back then like that. That makes so much more sense. So um, one of the more interesting aspects is I've talked to a climate nonprofit who their thing is mangroves. And I was like, mangroves? And on, I was like, the trees and the water on the banks, that was like the weird like housing-like roots. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. And they were like, do you know how important they are for the ecosystem? I was like, no, not at all. Incredibly massive. They help river banks stay rivers. They help with fish. They provide. And so it's there's so many ways to do charity activations where you can add them in as subtle nudges for research-based opportunities. Like if... Um, your game has zombies, like most zombies started from a plague or a virus or some sort. Like it can be an item in the game that is like discovered and it's thick. Um, it just talks about some real life research. So there's some really good opportunities. Um, some nonprofits have what they call a minimum donation and they do that so that the brands that they work with don't feel um, this is particularly true for longstanding nonprofits, because if you look at the way nonprofits work today versus then, it used to be a nonprofit would go to a boardroom and they would pitch and it would be this big elevated thing. But over the last, I would say, 20 to 25 years, it's shifted from going to boardrooms to these much more focused marketing Co companies um, want to tie it to marketing and presenting themselves as well. And the most interesting aspect is a lot of people will just do these in-game activations or they'll a company will sell something with proceeds going to a donation, but then they don't talk about how awesome it was that they did that. They don't brag about themselves and they don't remind their consumers. And so those are just kind of, kind of incredible what working with a right nonprofit and messaging it in the right way can do for any business. That's amazing. We actually have a question from Discord I'd like to bring up real quick. Uh, from Genevieve, question for Alyssa. What is a suggestion for a small indie game to approach charity options if you don't have DLC in your game? So if you don't have DLC, um, well, do you have microtransactions of any sort? Are we saying um, are we saying DLC to mean all transactions or like DLCs like we think where you get like a 30% more game? She's answering here. Uh, no microtransactions. No microtransactions. So in this case, it can be um, if you're going to do a game sale, instead of doing a game sale, do um, purchases within a period of time, a percentage could go through. The other option is that um, if your game is not super big, you know, like maybe a, a large nonprofit that has a ton of support in the gaming industry might not be the best fit to reach out to to give codes to. But this space, especially since the pandemic happened in 2020, had a surge of charities trying to work in this space. And it's becoming harder and harder for nonprofits, particularly smaller nonprofits, to connect. And when I say smaller, I don't mean in, I mean like revenue size, not number of employees size. Those are, those are different. Um, to connect and so, and get partners because I mean, if, when I when I was at Twitch or just like when I've helped other companies or friends like narrow down the choices, you have to go match for match with like what makes the most sense for your business. But if you're an indie game, is there a local um, lo local nonprofit that you could work with? You can donate codes. You could say that for 
every hour played or every 20 hours played in the game. So you can drive people just back to play your game and you can do a donation of giving away game codes. So I'm sure you have a local children's hospital that works for that. So, I mean, all of that is so interesting because yeah, there are things that don't apply. And a lot of people do think on this big macro level, it's like, okay, if I'm going to do a charity thing, I have to do something with like St. Jude's or something, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that big. So thinking locally, I really like that idea, but you touched on something else. It's like, so, you know, in the same way that we teach the whole publisher thing on, this is how you find a publisher and you narrow it down from this list of 700 that we have on our website. How do you go about sorting and vetting and researching and finding the right charity to go with your game? Okay. So a lot, I'm going to, a lot of people may not agree with this, but I'm going to first tell you, do not, do not ever go to charity navigator or guide star and use those ratings to decide if you're going to support a nonprofit. Let me really quick tell you why. If it's an accounting game, if you're a really large organization um, and I'm not going to say any nonprofit names, for examples here, like that's, that's not polite, but if you're a really large organization, it's really easy for you to get a higher rating. The more money you bring in the door, do you know who gets impacted the most? Um, black women who found nonprofits, they get lower ratings because they have a harder time getting funded because the, it's, and so just like you're thinking about like the nonprofit space, the nonprofit space is overwhelmingly white women. I went to a convention for nonprofits and I ended up using the men's restroom because I had to go hop to another panel and the line for the women's restroom, which was like 99% white women was wrapped around this massive hallway. And I ran into a gentleman and he goes, you got a panel? I was like, yep. He goes, yeah, I would have done the same thing. He's like, there's never a line in the men's room at these conventions. And when you think about it, like you would, you want to believe the charity space is not a space that has this problem, but it's like overwhelmingly 90% white and over 90% women. And so when you think about when who's holding the money, who's giving out the money, who's being asked and trusted like the big question you have to ask yourself when you're looking at this is, do you know how to look at your business KPIs, right? You can read a nonprofit's mission. Um, I've been doing this for a long time, so I sound a little bit more callous and I do apologize for that, but you can read it. No, this whole show mission. is about cynicism and callous. It's all good. Yes. You fit right in. So you can, you can work with a nonprofit. You can read a nonprofit's website and you can ask them like if they're, if they're giving, helping, I want to use something super tangible. If they're feeding people and they have a bold claim, they're feeding a million people a year. You're not looking at dollars to the program because the way people measure that on like these rating websites is they don't include the people who run these programs as a cost of the program. They include them in something like administrative or extra. And the bigger that bucket is, the worse it is. And so many people who work at nonprofits are on food stamps and supportive systems because nonprofits have to keep that low because these rating systems have messed up the system so poorly. As somebody who lives in a area mainly populated by a resort area full of old rich white people, the statistic that 99% of these people running these things are old rich white women does not surprise me at all because I see it here. There are always these charity functions well, and that's exactly who it is. So the boards are usually primarily men. 
Um, and the women at the nonprofits actually are people who don't have as much power or aren't, aren't as paid as well. So all of the people doing the day-to-day -day work tend to be women, um, not usually rich. And then the boards tend to be a makeup of mostly white men. Okay. So if we're not using those two sites, and I had only ever, ever heard of even one of them, what are we doing? How are we finding, how are we finding okay. good ones? So this is where you start with introspection. There's You can... You can look up nonprofits related, but first off, look at your game. Does your game have anything related to climate? And you're like, no. Okay. Is there a gardening aspect? Do you take care of any plants? Are there livestock? All of those things are climate. All right. No, nothing like that. All right. It's a housing game. You got to clean a house or build a house. Great. So what could fit? Habitat for humanity. You can start thinking through like first there's two ways to do it. You can look at what the product is. So if it's a physical product, like does it tie something specific or what does your, your game studio have values in? And that's what you root it in. That's what makes it successful. When you build your community management, when you build your social media, when you build your brand voice, you always come back to what is your brand, your product, your game stand for, right? So you start there. All right, let's say um, I'm going to continue with my fictional game, Alyssa's Playhouse, which is, you know, a, like a tree house, right? So With I can zombies. look at it. Was okay. We can add zombies into this. Okay. All right. So you live out of a in my fictional game. You live in a really nice tree house that you built because the world is done by zombies, and zombies happened because of a, a virus. All right. So there's three ways to look at this. There's a shelter aspect in which I have a house I live in. So that is anything related to pe people being unhoused um, or needing assistance with housing. Um, there is an aspect of fear because there is zombies in the game. Great. That's anything related to mental health. The zombies themselves were started by a medical virus. Cool. So we can tie that back to any research related thing. It can be research or just medical treatment in general. Um, the main character is a woman. Great. Women's health, women's rights, women's whatever. There's um, a tree. There's a tree. There you go. There's climate. Wow. Now my brain is working. See, yes. that's, and so you, that's what you do. You break it down and you go to the roots. It's really easy to go, wow, there's a lot of creators that support nonprofit XYZ. I bet if I partner with nonprofit XYZ, people will buy my game. That is not how that works. And nonprofits also have to be very careful about the commercial co-ventures that they promote because they benefit to it. And since they're a public, so a nonprofit, there's no owner. If something is a nonprofit, it's considered a public good. It is owned by the public. I didn't know that. Yeah. In fact, when a nonprofit shutters its doors, it can't, like, people don't take the resources. They have to be donated or given back to the government. And so there's really strict, really, really strict laws around what a nonprofit can and can't do. And some people get really frustrated with nonprofits because they're asking nonprofits to do things that they can't do. Well, I want you to tweet this out on your socials. And it's like, well... They might have to put three different links or clicks away from it so that the thing they're promoting doesn't get them in trouble. Because if they do do anything like that, it could potentially, you know, harm their nonprofit status. So I think that's the other thing is like, once you have decided you want to do this, be a little bit flexible um, and understanding. And you can ask a nonprofit, is this something you do because this is your brand guidelines? It's a legal hurdle? Or is this just something you don't want to do because you don't feel comfortable? And if the answer is a legal hurdle, then it's not something that they can move on. It's not something they can budge on. Dan, I'm sure that like in conversations you've had, you, you know exactly what I'm talking 
about. Oh, there is a whole process for social media stuff. It's got to go by this and go by these rules. And it's got to be approved. It's got to match the brand. It can't hurt the brand. It can't do this. You can't. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. And, and so I was briefly on Dan's stream playing Fortnite the other day. And the first thing he informed me was that I could not say any of the words that I use on this channel, you know, because that would go against all sorts of guidelines. Yeah. So but that's some, also my personal channel. Yeah. So the other thing with nonprofits as well is um, let's talk about like, say you want to do something and you found the perfect nonprofit, you've read their website you feel they're really good at communicating their mission. You understand it. You believe in their impact um, and you really love it. But let's say this nonprofit doesn't believe in gaming or they're scared of gaming. That can happen. Um, and sometimes you're not going to be able to change people's minds. But I'll share a really exciting one. The very first charitable commercial co-venture agreement Twitch did for Pride was with the Human Rights Organization, with HRC. And we got on a call and the first question from an executive to me is, well, what about shooters? How do we prevent our brand from showing up? And the answer is really, you can't. But the way this to explain, I like to use a really extreme example. So people accept money for non nonprofits, accept money through Facebook and Facebook fundraisers. But we all know Facebook is a hellscape. We all know Facebook people say the worst things that they can possibly imagine with their name attached to, and not a single nonprofit goes through to make sure that a person's feed is clean of misinformation, hateful stuff before they accept do donations. In this case, it's, and the other thing that, um, this is a really good example. How many charities would it work, jump at the chance to work with Deadpool? What is Deadpool? But if not the most outrageous, gruesome, vulgar vulgar like media icon that you could possibly think of that that isn't in to adult content right yeah it's like <laughs> on one hand you they would be crazy speechless. not to because of the exposure but yeah on the other hand oh my oh, god but nonprofits would absolutely jump at deadpool i made this point at a convention um early last year which is um and this, this might, Jay, to the, the article you shared with me, um, be a good point to talk about it. But a lot of people think of movies as an acceptable form of content that could have violence and killing and whatnot. But video games are not an acceptable form. However, the, the video uh, movies are often real life people portraying themselves in some capacity, showcasing really realistic stuff, whereas most video games are not hyper realistic. All right, so let me post that article real quick because, yes, that is a, a wonderful segue into it. So there was a really good article this morning on Game Industry Biz, uh, and it's from, oh, what is her name? Uh, Gina Jackson on Skillful, and she's talking, it's primarily UK-based, what she's talking about, but she's going through the the dichotomy of the popularity and the growth and the size of the game industry versus what we how we get treated and you know laws that get enacted and grants and stuff that and all this stuff and it boils down to in, in many cases despite the fact that we know how many gamers are out there and at this point you got to say virtually well, almost everybody is, is a gamer of some sort but they don't identify as a gamer 
and you know how that affects in the article sense it's like laws and you know support from the government and everything else but in this case like charities it's like yes so why is it okay for a charity to work with deadpool but not grand theft auto yeah and i think so the big i think the big difference here using grand theft auto specifically is that um what they're worried about is their name showing up where a content creator so i'm going to use two examples i'm talking about the content creator aspect and then like just people who play games who don't create content so content creators might do something while fundraising for the nonprofit, like spend more time in the adult club than they should, than is necessary for any part of the story. Um, Grand Theft Auto role-playing. Also, there's some questionable characters where people made things, like they gave them these really rich stories, but maybe they were not the right person to be giving that story or they promoted a stereotype. So nonprofits don't want to be associated with in those types of cases. So that might be why they, in general, might not want to work in the gaming industry is just thinking about like what a content creator might do with the game that they they could be playing. Now, in terms of being inside the game, I'm going to use a fictional children's hospital. So fictional children's hospital is for children and they have a really wonderful brand. And let's say the item in Grand Theft Auto is a t-shirt or a sticker or something. Now imagine a bunch of clips coming out of the game that people did and posted to Reddit and the person playing didn't think about the fact they maybe are wearing the charity's logo or mascot on their car as they decided to mow down a bunch of people in the game. Now, obviously it's just about brand positioning um, and, and it's about appeasing their donors. If you think about why it's so important there's another reason I'm going to, I don't like to, to point out the why we should, because I like to stick it to business reasons. It's much easier, but the number one reason why we should all be concerned is the world is capitalist, whether or not you live in a more or less capitalist society, we all function on dollars. Mm -hmm. Nonprofits are a function or a necessary part of capitalism. They fill a lot of gaps that our governments don't. So when you think about that, and you hear that the global average age of a nonprofit donor is 65, we should be worried. It's not getting younger. And every, and if they're aging up before they're donating, I want you to think about the fact that what's our social security system or retirement look like? What happens as we start aging up and we have less money and that donor age creeps up to 70 and up. And then the donor age stays up really high and nonprofits struggle. And then I want you to think about like all of the gaps they fill, how many housed people, unhoused people they take and get housed, how many people they feed. I'm a product of a free school lunch program. Like in my family would have really struggled if they had to pay, you know, that $4 a day every day all the time. And Come to find out, it's not your government subsidizing a lot of the time. It's a nonprofit uh -huh. that's subsidizing those school programs, which I didn't know. Um, food banks are often backed by a larger nonprofit focused on food that they help local. Like No Kid Hungry is one of my favorite. They're not a client, so I feel like I should say that since I do work with some nonprofits. But they, they're one of my favorite nonprofits because I absolutely understand from my childhood, like, 
thinking about where my next meal might come from or being ration rationing food or whatnot. And so the way they work is they themselves are not handing out the food. They are really good at identifying really effective local networks. So if you want, if you think about like the effort and the, the time and the money and some nonprofits have a lobbying arm to ensure that the government also like helps fund some of this stuff. And in Europe, some countries, their governments fund most of their nonprofits because they've already recognized that they fill a lot of gaps. The U.S., that is not so. Um, and most nonprofits are, are like based in the U.S. Like in terms of the number of nonprofits that exist in the world, there's like four million or something like that. More than two million of them are in the nonprofit or in the U.S. So um, it's really important to think about not just like it's good for your business, but I want you to think like it's really easy to think of yourself, but we're all like really small like I went and stood at the Grand Canyon, where if you stand at the edge of the ocean in a pitch black night with no light pollution behind you, you'll realize how small individually we are. And you can help by educating future generations in your game about the issues that stand. And you don't always have to be money. Sometimes money is not reasonable for your business. You're an indie game where you don't have that many users uh, or players and you're like, well, if I do this, I know the maximum I could raise is a couple thousand dollars. You could still absolutely do that. Every dollar adds up. You know, it's like it's much if you put a dollar away in your savings account every other week for a year, you know, that's more money than you're going to have if you don't do it at all. And so it's really important to think about like what our society could look like. You want to talk about the games industry. Games are a luxury. Movies are a luxury. TV is a luxury. We want the game industry to continue to thrive. That means people's livelihoods and lives also have to continue to thrive. Sorry, that got really, really deep. But I think the video game industry in particular has a responsibility because we are one of the biggest, the, the thing we spend the most amount of time on. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. That's awesome. Oh, we got another question I'd oh, like to ahead. drop if you want me to go for it, Jay. Go, go, uh, shoot. Uh, this is from Hop from Discord. Those of us looking for work right now, are there resources? I know this totally derails everything we're talking about. Are there resources for finding work at studios with a positive social impact? So that's another reason companies should do social impact and charity work. People want to work at those companies. Like the number of people I know, I personally would never go work at Facebook. I would never want to, I would never ever want to be like, yeah, I work at Facebook and then hear what anyone might say about the negative impact of the world, right? So um, on employers' pages, 
Um, Blizzard's a great example. They, because um, Activision has the Call of Duty Endowment, so they have a really fantastic resource for veteran military veterans. And it's not just like, a, oh, hey, we hire military veterans. They have a whole website that's public that somebody who's not a military veteran could look at. They break down their interview process. They break down what they look for. They break down and they so you can find companies that are committed. And I want to say as someone who's worked as a nonprofit, like a social impact professional, pretty much, you know, like I consider teachers as part of this my entire adult career. You're not going to find a company that's wholly perfect. It just in and um, I am ADHD, so I personally struggle sometimes with black and white when it comes to my ideals. I feel very strongly, but you may, I'm going to use Coca-Cola, for example, all this stuff is public. Coca-Cola has done really (laughs) great stuff in the United States for society, right? They've done lots of school programs. They've done lots of this. Um, They're really bad with climate change, and they're really bad about the labor they use outside of the United States. Yeah, but to be fair, a lot of the, you know, stuff they've done in schools is selling high sugar, high caffeinated mm-hmm. they, stuff. They give a lot of money for scholarships and they uh, do okay. invest in like neighborhoods and stuff. So, or actually a better one is Nike. Nike has an incredible story from a diversity angle. Um, and I say this, so Nike, Coca-Cola and Apple, you know, in China, there was the, the Uyghur labor issue around whether or not they were voluntarily working. Um, those three companies got together and lobbied Congress not to pass a law saying that they couldn't use slave labor in other countries. However, <laughs> Nike has an incredible social impact in the United States and in Europe. Incredible. Like the work they do for the communities. So you're, you may like, and those are like mega corporations, but I will say that like, it doesn't mean that people don't feel and that they don't commit to their social like impact story that they have. It just means that they're also competing in a world where money speaks. And every year they have to do more with less and have more profit. Every, every company everywhere in the world that's for profit. But those are just some like really extreme examples of companies will post about it if they have it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they think that they have to be a mega corporation before they have it. So if you do get at a studio, you can say, hey, have we ever considered this? And they might say, oh, we don't really have budget. And they're like, you might say, well, let's talk about something that we could do. Because it only once you get started doing one, the employees of a company will keep snowballing it. When I was at Twitch, I launched Black History Month for the first time in 2018. And if you go look at it, you can tell it's somebody who's never done DEI in their life. Like that was my first time doing DEI. Um, and you can just tell, right? And... But I'm very proud that I did it because it was really hard to get it live. Twitch didn't celebrate it at that time. They were very concerned around harassment. Um, but it's snowballed now. There's also Women's History Month and Pride, and they celebrate so many more things. And it does get to a point where companies will have to like pick and choose, and they can't do it all the time. Like If you have a friend, and they have the same problem every single time you talk to them, that problem will become less important to you because you hear it all the time. So companies do have to decide what they value and what they care about for it to make a real impact. And so, yeah, they may only do two or three things a year, but those two or three things a year they do are freaking awesome as opposed to doing 10 things a year that are kind of okay. 
So I love the, the analogy of when your friend tells you something over and over, it becomes less important. Yeah, it 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 just it's just how we work. It's like right. Or if you set something down, if a mess sits too long in your house, it just kind of becomes part of your house. You don't really see it as a mess anymore. When we're used to something, the messages are less effective. So it's it's important to either switch it up or have a rotating thing and be mm -hmm. public and honest around what your stances are. Um, a lot of women or, you know, not speaking on behalf of people of color, but the commentary you see openly is that if you don't specifically state that your space is a welcome space for us, we will not assume that it is. And gaming in particular, you know, like the same article we were just talking about, people not feeling that gaming is acceptable also talks about how women women are still an issue, like hiring women, the diversity issue for women is still not at 50%. And that's because if you go on TikTok right now, the number of women who are posting clips of being harassed, the number of conversations that people have, and I think people don't think about this concept of a whisper network. And I think, and right, you wait, may- how about, what is a whisper network? That's why I'm going to explain. Oh, sorry. So, I'm so used to people going on and like skipping over these terms. I'm like, okay. No, no, no. So you may even be like, I didn't know the term whisper network, but I was a part of one. Um, a whisper network is the idea that say we can use Blizzard. They've had a lot of examples. So a whisper network might be um, a chain of employees that work there and don't work there who communicate privately hey, I see you're going to go work there, stay away from XYZ person or be really careful, don't be alone with that person. A whisper network is where you can't get out of the situation and you have to go have a livelihood, you have to operate in life. So what you're going to do is you're going to inform the person who's going into a situation of what they should be aware of. Or in some cases, it might be, um, let's, let's use an example for people of color. Hey, that person says slurs. And if you come, if you go promote it up in the tell their boss or like try to promote it to HR, they'll just say it's a joke. You may not want to go work there. That's messed up. Not but, the whisper network, but the, that it's, it's so acceptable that you have to talk about it secretly. That is, that is how most people who experience harassment, hate, inequality, misogyny, all of these things exist. That's how you might see like... Um, there are some people who are like, I can't figure out why I can't work. No one who's a woman wants to work with me. And it might be because anytime a woman does post on their tweet, then another woman DMs them and goes, let me tell you, just so you know, make your own decisions. Um, but let me tell you about my experience. It's another reason why I constantly talk about don't tell people other people are good people or bad people. Only speak specific to your experience. So I might say, um, and people all the time ask me, Hey, do you know so-and-so what's your, what, what do you think of them? I say, well, I interacted with them at a convention. We didn't end up going to a bar, so we didn't drink. So I let them know. I have no idea what they're like when they drink. And, um, I say, so my experience was good because these are the parameters in which we interacted. And I'm really specific about it because your experiences with someone or with a company could be really good or really bad. Like I've been really open about my experiences at Twitch while other people have had really incredible experiences there. And it doesn't diminish their experience or my experience, but it's important to know that like nothing is absolute. And that goes with companies and their social impact programs. They may say a bunch of things. You can also ask 
um, the people that work there, you might message someone and say, hey, I'm considering applying to a job. I saw on the company page that they're super dedicated to ensuring equitable promotions. And that, um, like, is that true? Is that your experience? Can you tell me anything about that? So you can ask, you can, you can use the idea of a whisper, whisper network to say, this company has this on their social impact page. Is that true? So Alyssa and I, your full disclosure, Alyssa and I had a conversation yesterday about IDB and, and social impact and things like that. And you opened my eyes to several things. It's like, we have to go and, and say that we're doing these things, you know? And so anyone who has been to our conferences or listens to the podcast knows I'm very, very adamant about getting a diverse group of, of speakers and conferences and, you know, at podcast guests and all this other stuff. But we've always just been like, well, why do we have to brag about that? It's it's like right there. You can see it. I mean, it's not, but we do apparently, and we're going to, but so how can, how can indie devs brag for lack of a better word, but talk about the, the effort that they're making and the work that they're doing without coming all across as like narcissistic assholes. So that's a really tough one. So in the height of the protests of BLM 2020, I donated quite a significant, significant in terms of for me to nonprofit organizations that were helping bail people out of jail. And I personally don't like to brag about that stuff. So I didn't post about it on Twitter. But the reason you have to brag about it is that we are easily influenced. There's a social study that says um, you're presented with a case study that you're, you're the, you're, you and your group are the board. They do it with a group and individuals. So the, the group is told you're the board of a pharmaceutical company, but you just found out that in like 50% of the cases, your product is going to kill people. And it gives them three options, least ethical, kind of ethical, um, best ethical. And it's like, do nothing, add a label and a warning. The third one is recall it, do more testing and re reissue the drug when it's better. The group often picks the first or the second option. So no ethics or some ethics. And individuals tend to pick some ethics or most ethics. And what the study concluded, and they've replicated this hundreds of times, is that we are we act badly because we assume that's what other people want us to do. So when you don't talk about the good you do, you are feeding into this general thing that we want people, if you think about bullying at school, like if you accident, if you laugh at a bully's comment because it was really funny, but also like you feel bad, like you're not going to stand up to the bully because everyone else laughed. Like it's the same concept. So if you're not talking about what you're doing, other people are not going to talk about what they're doing. And then it's all done in a way that nobody really knows what's going on. And is it really impacting anybody if you're doing it, but they're not aware? Are you changing anything? And people have to be uncomfortable to change. We don't learn or grow when we are comfortable. And that sounds really like not exciting, but all of the best things you learn are not when you're happy-go-lucky, like and everything's easy because you're not learning then. We don't remember it, but like school was hard and sitting in classrooms was hard and learning is hard. Learning new concepts is hard. And as we get older, it's even harder to learn new concepts. So you have to brag about it. There's a couple of ways to think about doing this. So for an, a game studio, it might be talking about your game development process. Some games are inspired by um, 
Native Americans or other cultures for elements of their game. And I know that it might be, you know, budget restricted and it, it may be really hard. But if you go out of your way to say, like, do some research, interview some people from that culture, read some of those things, it's very important you talk to people and get eyes on stuff. Because people, you like peer review and multiple people looking at a, an asset is so important so that you don't end up with like the New York Times the other day accidentally posted a swastika when their crossword puzzle. Wow. Because they didn't have a peer review. Actually, and how does somebody not catch that at the at the time? Because you're not, the, th the reason you don't catch these things is people are not operating with malicious intent. When you are thinking about your intent, you don't see what other people could see. And the thing is, is people will never know your intent. So you only ever have to think about the impact. So um, it's not just like, oh, I read some books and watched some YouTube videos and I am really appreciative of the culture. No, you're taking things from that culture. Therefore, you need to have somebody from that culture participating in the process, either by having them review it in parts, having a conversation, giving feedback. And when they tell you something, you don't argue with them. I think that's the thing is like when we get feedback, our, we want to defend our idea. Um, I like to say that engineers and people who are in game developers, like they want to think they're hyper logical because they're coding and they're using these tools that are all rooted in science, but they're artists. They sound the exact same as somebody who's hanging a piece of art in a museum that doesn't like the lighting. Okay. They're the exact same. They're artists and they're cranky. But when someone gives you feedback about your work, like your intention is unknown to every single person that's going to interact with your game. Like, right, so I, I Googled that, that crossword and it's one of those things that I can see it now if you're not looking for it, how it can be missed. But at the same time, it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's, it's like that obvious. And I was like, oh my God. And it, and they did it on the first day of Hanukkah. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, let's make I, this worse. I want to go back just a little bit. Cause you said like, if you, if you're not talking about it, nobody else will. And I can see as, you know, as culture changes over time, I can even see this with content creators, how, you know, five, six, seven years ago, you would see content creators posting on Twitter talking about what they're doing. But now you see like in their, they're, they're talking about uh, like ginger sexuality, but they're also like, I've got X amount of followers on this platform, X amount of followers on this platform. We did this. And it's like, it's like, it it's used important. to be like, if, yeah, it, it used to be like when somebody would post a video of, oh, I'm giving some, uh, this homeless guy $50 or something, right? That would be like, it seemed like it was self-serving, but as culture changes and shifts, that is becoming more normal. It's instead of, it's not, look what I did, but it's like, look what you can do too. Yeah. And you, you do have to be careful. So I do want to touch on things um, with content. I think I posted this around the holidays on social media around a lot of times we give to organizations that don't need, for example, um, regardless of where you stand on abortion, this this fact remains the same. Most of the money raised and donated was donated to nonprofits helping people get abortions in areas that were not impacted by the law changes. That doesn't really help those people. But oh. there were these massive groups talking about how much money was raised. And so you have to be really intentional when you do help people. Um, the other thing is, is like sometimes people want to give 
like leftovers from holiday dinners to people who um, are unhoused or maybe in um, like have built up shelter in the city. Um, people will not accept that because people do poison that stuff. There are malicious people. So it's not safe for them to accept it. They also are not going to accept it based on allergies. They don't know what your food prep is. And you're thinking, well, I'm just giving, instead of throwing away this food, like, would you accept food from somebody else? So why is it like that you would, and so you have to be really intentional. And then the other thing around content is you have to make sure that the content you're creating and the way you're positioning it doesn't make you look like a savior or that it's trauma porn. And I say, I say trauma porn really discreetly. Like I really like the work Mr. Beast has done, but I do not like the videos that have become a whole content category of people walking up and giving a bunch of money to someone who's sitting on the streets. I'm sure they do, of course, eventually like get permission and talk to this person like once they've recorded it. But somebody just should not have to be on display and in pain for you to be willing to help someone. Yes. And that's the really hard part about helping people is we want to help in a way that makes us feel good. And the most if you the ways that we feel most good are usually the ways that are the least impactful. And then it's also like nonprofits have to like work with this or groups that are advocating for diversity have to manage with this. And so you put them in a position where they have to figure out how to be effective and appease the people that are they're getting help from. For di for diversity, like social impact is just like a really blanket term. It's this it's the same as corporate social responsibility, right? It's just a it's a new term. And so for diversity, people love to say, we're going to do mentorships and these classes and these workshops. We're the most educated generations in the world. I'm an incredibly educated person who is motivated to self-learn with more access to information. Do you know how many times people have offered to mentor me, but not sponsor me, not introduce me to people, not give me money for projects they think are incredible? I have tons of people who tell me, um... That if they wanted to, they probably could make some of these things I talk with them about a reality. But what are they willing to offer me? Their time and guidance. And that makes them feel good. But it is not the most effective way to help somebody. You want more people at your company that um, aren't white men or that don't look like somebody else in the studio? What are your hiring practices? And what's the bar for that? And how much are you really making people jump through hoops to prove themselves to you? And those are all things that it's incredible because they sound hard and they scare people. But like taking it back to the very first thing I said, why, why do companies want to do this? If for no other reason, you make more money. It's proven time and time again that um, women are really good in leadership positions. They're really good in a crisis. And there is a study that... Um, that where companies have a good balance of women in decision-making roles that impact the company as a whole, like a good mixture, those companies made more money. Where diversity is more balanced at all levels of the company, not just in gender, but in, um, you know, background of like where they come from, traditional, non-traditional, like education or self-taught or their skin color or all of those things. It has proven companies make more money. And when you make it um, unacceptable to single people out or to do uninclusive, to be have be exclusive or to say crappy things in your workplace, people want to work there. Your retention is longer. And so people are like, we always used to challenge 
like, what's the turnover rate? And people will be like, it's an acceptable attrition rate. And it's like, but do you want people to stay at your company a long time? Do you know how much, like, companies are bad at documentation. Like, do you really want somebody who's been there for 10 years who might know, like, how some things work together in just such a specific way and they've never had the time to document it? Do you really want that person leaving because they were uncomfortable because every time they got into a meeting with so-and-so, they made uncomfortable comments? When I don't wear makeup, I look way young. I'm in my 30s, but I look 10 years younger. When I started at Twitch, I got into a meeting with a gentleman who looked at me and said, are you old enough to work here? And I had no idea that wasn't acceptable to say at the time. And I was so shocked. Like, what do you even do with that? But there's so many of those moments that happen. They happen in your games. And a lot of people in tech in particular, I'm mean, roping in games here, like to say, I just build stuff. I don't do. But the thing is, is we all have our biases. We're not robots. We're not pure. And our biases, our vision shows up in the things that we build. And when you have a room in which it's okay to challenge and say, hey, I like, I'll tell you from experience, I don't want to be the person in the room being, hey, I think that's going to come off racist. Do you, I don't know if you remember when Twitch put out the voting thing and they used Mount Rushmore, which is probably not a good thing to use. And they put Kappa's face on Rushmore like two days before the election to go tell people to vote. And it did not go well. My understanding is I didn't go through a bunch of peer review because it, it, I, I wasn't a part of that process. Um, but I remember that public situation. And I remember thinking, wow, if that had been something that anybody from a from a diverse group had been brought in to say, they might've said, let's not use Native American land that was desecrated to build a monument to white presidents with Kappa's sarcastic face to go tell people to vote in an election that is actually stressful and one of the most terrifying elections for most people in a long time. But they did, yes. but that's why you know, it's important. Uh like, I'm, I'm sure it was a great you know, idea. It's a little ironic that your last name is Sweetman because there's no sugarcoating, right? You just say it like it is. And that's amazing. That's amazing. There's I'm just sitting here like this is no BS right here. This is this is amazing. Well, it doesn't it just it, some people like it and some people don't, but I well, found I just get further just being how I am. You're on the right podcast. Let's put it that way, because that's that's typically the way that we are as well. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It's, it's uh, a, if you can listen to us long enough and you still when we get called to be on these board meetings with these big companies and they're like well explain the how the industry is and blah 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 and i'm like if you listen to all of us that have been doing this for 20 or 30 years and you still want to invest in our industry or join our industry then you're either perfect or there's something extremely wrong with you one of the other so yeah so i'm gonna share an article that i think is super important for everyone in the games industry to read it's a 2013 article from polygon called no girls allowed written by tracy lynn i'll post that jay it is a long read it is not like an article it is a feature post that talks about the history of how video games became stereotyped for boys oh god yeah and it talks about the, the people, the marketers that, and how this came from. And so I think we always like in marketing, we're like, which audiences are we marketing to? I do think that things can be made for everyone and you can target marketing segments that are more likely. But I don't know how many times when that I hear like a, 
like first person shooters or I hear esports and then they hear like they want to name like these top same people over and over. And I think what people don't realize is that people who are tapped all the time, and this is not true across the board, but they don't have to work as hard. Mm-hmm. They're kind of sure. just like, like if you are, and I have seen this time and time again, working with content creators. When I work with a content creator who hasn't had things handed to them just because they got big. They're um, hungry. They're hungry and they want to do a good job because they want your recommendation again in the future. Of course, they want respect and fair pay and all of those things. But not only that, they're going to do a good job because they have to, you know. And some large content creators kind of like, eh, they're kind of sort into is. it. They're just doing it just for what I, I don't. I, I, I there's no shame to them. Everyone mm-hmm. like I've I've. I benefit from being a conventionally attractive woman. Do I absolutely leverage those tools um, when I need to in certain situations? Do I tone down my bluntness and try to sound more sweet and um, like make, make men feel like unthreatened by me? Absolutely. Because I have to do that and sometimes to succeed. So when you see somebody um, and you know, it's really, awful that we boil down a lot of things to that's just politics. I got news for everyone who says politics aren't in video games. Politics is means everything. If it impacts a person's way of life and there can be a policy, it is politics. The food we eat is politics. The air we breathe is politics. Your existence, your ability to buy a house. Um, every game made with war is politics. So when we say, oh, I don't want to talk because that person talks about controversial politics and what they talked about was Black Lives Matter, I want you to think about what you're really saying. <laughs> and it's so it, it, it is so But you have true. to be challenged. Like if you're in these rooms where everyone's saying the same thing, no, it's you're really unlikely because you don't want to be ousted from a group. Like psychologically, it's hard. So more people have to speak about it and push on it. You, you see a, a whole bunch of backlash. And this goes back to, it's about money. And these things, if, if you approach it correctly, these things will end up generating a lot of money. I always think of, oh God, not, not Last of Us. What was the, um, this war of mine? I always get those two mixed up. How much different do you think this war of mine would have been if it was just like, a standard shelter-based survival game without going into all the other aspects and themes and things that happen on a societal level with, with war. I mean, it's like, that's a situation, that's a game that has, that was one very well done, but two, it absolutely brought politics into games and yeah. it doesn't matter. And you, all the people are like, ah, oh, we shouldn't have politics in games to keep that out of games. And you go to their, you know, steam page or whatever, and they're playing call of duty 24 seven. And it's like, well, what the fuck do you think that game is? It's one. Of and those- I think games are such a powerful tool. So if you're going to build a new game or you're getting ready to do DLC or like, maybe you're doing a patch to your game and you're adding some content, like other ways to do it or to have important conversation in games. If you want to think about, um, so as I was a second grade teacher, every morning we had breakfast in the classroom. It was, I was at a charter school, so it was a little bit different. It was for low income. It was built in low income neighborhoods. We were a school that had their own garden type of situation. But every morning when they're eating their breakfast, we did an exercise in which we talked about, there were essentially emotional intelligence exercises. So it would be like, 
three fictional students and this is the situation. And then as a class, we would be like, all right, so what do you think the next steps are? What do you think is the right move? And then we'll be like, well, how would you feel if that happened? And the thing is, is games have the power to do that, to mm -hmm. teach that. Um, I met this incredible individual at TwitchCon. I cannot remember her name. But she told me about this game called My Child Levin's Board. It's a mobile game. And um, I don't remember which country. I think it's Norway, but I may be wrong. Um, during the period of time in which Nazi Germany was invading other European countries, there were children who came from that, um, from the soldiers um, having children with native people from that country. And those children were ostracized. Um, and the lineage of those children are ostracized because they are born of not Nazis, essentially. And the game is about teaching children to have empathy for those kids and giving them a new perspective. And a lot of times, like it, people think about empathy as like you have it or you don't, but it's a skill. Just like speaking or singing, we think about like good speakers or singers are just born with it. Yes, some are better than others, but it's still a skill you have to practice. You can become a good singer if you practice. Um, I mean, I don't believe that I sing every day in my car, but, you know, uh, but it's, it's a skill. And so you have to challenge yourself to think about not what your intent is, because people can't see that, but what the impact is. Does it really matter if your intent was to have a really awesome game, but everyone that opens it sees something and goes, wow, that's racist. And it wasn't even something you meant. Like, what are you going to do? Stand out there and be like, that's not what that meant. Like, are you, is that the hill you're going to die on? Or are you going to be like, oh, snap, that that wasn't what I meant. I, I guess I didn't see it from that perspective. Let me make some adjustments. Like, there's two ways to go about it. And we're so stuck on the other hard part about social impact with charity is that people take it personally. They may say, like, this game, like, we can use the New York Times crossword puzzle. That person who made that probably did not have the intention. But what nobody knows for sure that that person didn't have the intention to send a secret message to other people, coded dog whistle to other people that there was somebody working at the New York Times that felt like they did. Nobody knows that. So you can stand on a hill and say, that's not my intent. Or you can take a moment to be like, it's not personal. I just made a mistake. It was just an accident. Let's fix it. And yes, unfortunately, the internet does mob and like has over crazy reactions. That unfortunately is the fact that it's not that each individual person has a bad reaction. It's that you have 10, instead of having like one person coming to you to correct a problem, you have 10,000 people and that's overwhelming and scary. And it's each person has having their feelings too. But it, it it's just really hard. And in, in our space, I believe really could stand for some emotional um, maturity growth and like the ability to step back and some introspection and really decide some of the battles that we want to fight or battles we want to fight. I'm not sure trying to get our industry to mature right now is a battle that we can remotely win given what you see on so it's, it's, it's when I saw that article this morning, it's like everybody hates gamers and that's okay. 
everybody hates games. That's okay. The the first thing that I thought it was going to be about is the toxicity of the player base and how we just deal with it. And regardless, and it's, you know, I see it in the work that we do on the consulting side. And I told somebody recently, a lot of times I feel like, excuse me, that we're making games in spite of the gamers because it's like you you get trashed for so much stuff. Um, Well, so I found that, all right, so it was Norway, by the way, because I pulled up the, and and My Child Levensborn is actually on Steam too, so it's not just mobile only anymore. Um, And it's one of these games that I don't know how I have not come across this. It's got like 1,100 very positive reviews on Steam. It's absolutely crazy. All right, so we got to wrap up soon. I want to do two things. One, this is your chance to plug. So if a developer is interested in let's say everything from having their project audited by somebody so they do get a, a you know a different diverse look to helping with their messaging to anything along the lines is there somewhere that they can go that you're familiar with that will help with this so um tanya to pass has a i need diverse games and she um can be a resource um unfortunately it's not like a standard resource of like who to go talk to on this person. And there's a couple of reasons for that is because no one person speaks for every group and that makes it so much more difficult. Um, but if you reach out to me, um, you know, I'm always down to do an initial 30 minute, like give you or give you like the things that jump out at me and then suggest additional people to talk to. Uh, Christina Amaya, um, one of the founders and CEO of Latinx and games is somebody that, um, I really enjoy working with because she, she also is somebody that is like, it's, it's the goal to make the space better. It's, it's, and the thing is, is like, I came on and talked about charity today, but there's so many other incredible people doing charity in this space, pleasantly twisted. Um, or Vanessa is her, her real name, her government name, um, does stuff in the space. I am Brandon, Ryan, there's like so many incredible people. So if all you can do to get help, to get started on something is to ask your network. Post on Twitter. I have absolutely no idea where to get started. I'm not even sure who I could ask to get connected to. People people will point you in the right direction. Sometimes Google can be helpful. Um, I'm Alleycat, A-L-Y-K-K-A-T on Twitter, but you can also search by my full name, Melissa Sweetman, both on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll always point you in a direction as best as possible. Um, and ask your employees, like if you've got a couple of people there, you can say, hey, I think we should find somebody to come in and take a look at this to get another set of eyes. Honestly, content creators too, like they're going to be the ones that are ripping on your game live when it goes and finding that. And once it's, you know, so, um, you know, happy to help also like talk to you about what it's like to set up a, a creator review board. Um, I think it's just really important that anything you do, you have clear communication and expectations of the role and from both sides. Like if you bring in a consultant, what is their role and real expectations? I think that's where a lot of breakdowns happen is expectations are not clear on both parties. All right. And now I'm going to do a fun one because I absolutely loved what you did with the zombie and treehouse analogy and how you can take any game and, and, I, I swear we could do an entire show on this. 
So I want to do that one more time with one of my favorite success stories over the last couple of, actually probably over the last month, actually. Um, Dwarf Fortress. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I would love to get in contact with Dwarf Fortress um, and for one of my clients to talk about a Twitch integration, but Dwarf Fortress, um, I haven't played it myself because it looks like one of those games I might like stay up all night. But the clips I've seen is like, you can make anything in that game. Yes. You literally could do anything. And you don't generally make it. It generally happens in spite of what you're doing. Yes. Right. So that's even better. So um, sickness, like all of a sudden you've got a plague, like research. You can you can bring it down. Like um, all of those things, like those things that are happening that are changing it. Thievery, you can talk about... Um, like if there's thieves, you can talk about how people are more likely to steal when they're econ when economic conditions are bad. Um, like a lot of people think about crime and they think like, oh, just people are just bad. It's like, no, if you look at the big picture and you look at it economically, there's they nobody like, OK, some like it's not a it's not a zero zero or a hundred. Right. But most people want to be good. Most people want to make other people happy and do right in society. But if you present them with things and Dwarf, Dwarf Fortress sounds like the perfect opportunity to have like this type of discussion. But if they're presented with obstacles, you know, choices in games where they're good or bad, um, some people in games like to go all bad just to see what chaos happens because it's a safe environment to do so. But like you can be like, oh, this dwarf family has started a gang or started a mob or started a thief ring because there's not enough food and they can't be fed. And now all of your dwarfs are like really angry. And you can just talk about those concepts. Like, does that sound like you're being told a political message? No, it sounds like you're just talking about the human condition. And dwarven so, condition. Dwarven condition in this yes. case, right? <laughs> or there's a, uh, you all the crops died because there wasn't good soil rotation. And because the crops weren't rotated in the soil, um, your all of your crops died. Great. You just learned that land can be over farmed. Like there's so many small nudges that can be done. Um, and, um, and if anyone wants to be collect connected to the UN climate program to like get their game as part of to do to like learn what things they should put in their game and be a part of a collect a larger collective of other game developers that are doing it happy to make a direct connection as well so it's there's just it's so fun and i love brainstorming like i have endless amounts of ideas when i look at games for ways that you can nudge so again you can do direct charity integration where funds go and again it doesn't have to be a hundred percent it's always awesome if you can but if you can't it's a good way to boost revenue and help a nonprofit. You can showcase a specific nonprofit. I think um, there was a game that Microsoft had where American Red Cross did a blood bank van. And the van itself was covered in blood because it was a zombie game. <laughs> and it was um, oh, encouraging yeah, yeah. people. Um, God, what and was that? That's so cool. And I was like, when a state of decay, state of decay. And when I saw that, I was like, that's so cool that the folks at American Red Cross could get the board or like all the people on board to do that really cool thing. And it was a blood drive. So there's lots of nudges that can be done. There's nonprofit partners you can find. Um, 
And again, like if there's nothing specific about your game that you think makes sense, go with what your company values are, go with what you personally care about and kind of start there. Or tune into our new segment where we give Alyssa random games and she, you know, completely just off the cuff tells you exactly how they can be integrated into social impact. Honest, honestly, I could probably do that. <laughs> I, I now want to do that. <laughs> There's actually uh, another, well, two more questions from Discord real quick if we want to. Sure. Got time. Okay. Um, here, I'll bring it up. It's from Jesse Himmelstein, Play Curious. Are there special tax considerations to take into account with those kind of integrations? And also, do these kind of collabs with charities work internationally? Should you stick with a charity in your country? And, and he said he's from France. So a lot of people like to stick with, um, like, if you're in Europe, excluding the UK now, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the VAT system, I think, is... Um, First and foremost, not every company is actually able to claim their tax benefits. So that's the first thing um, that should you should talk to a tax professional, not an accountant, not a lawyer, but a tax professional that understands tax law, because they'll be able to tell you if your company is even in a position to take a tax credit. Some countries offer um, to donate on top of your donation. So if like those benefits are really important to you, you can just pick one that's in your country. Um, if your player base is super global, a lot of international nonprofits are based in the US. Um, like direct relief is in like over a hundred countries. And St. Baldrick's Foundation, that's worldwide. Yeah, Make-A-Wish is worldwide. They have and some some do chapters or they're like federated. Um, man, that feels like I talked about Mastodon because that's the only way that word matters now is that. Sorry, um, but like American Red Cross has is like the American Red Cross, but then there's the French Red Cross and they're all broken up, but they're all the same. They're not the same org on the back end, but they share the same branding, same tenant and same work. So you can. Um, there's no Australia is a unique consideration. They do not like donations going in or out of the country and you have to be registered. So they're a very unique one. But um, for the most part, it's your activity is pretty limited, pretty unlimited in the world, as long as there's no special tax considerations you need to think about with your business. What's the next one? That was it. Oh, I thought we had two questions. Oh, sorry. It was. There was two questions in one. Ah, excellent. All right. I need to go make a social impact by picking up my son at school. Um, and... <laughs> But Elizabeth, this was absolutely fascinating, and mm -hmm. I I love this, and I want to do more of of these, even if we do clips, because I'm dead serious that that is just running in my head now. Is you know, Alyssa's social impact blurb of the week on random game. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything like you want to plug now? Where you're working? What you're doing? Yeah. So um, I'm like most people transition from a big company at an agency. Um, we mostly help like non-endemic gaming brands like get into gaming, but my passion is like working with smaller game companies and people who are really passionate about this. And if you come find me, you'll get to work directly with me because I do all of our strategy work for our clients. Um, I love connecting with people on Twitter as for as long as that place exists, I guess. Um, and I'm really active on LinkedIn pretty much every day. 
Well, thank you so much. That's going to be it for today. Dan, you want to play us out? Sure. Thank you so much, Alyssa. It was, this was awesome. Uh, this was an amazing talk that we just had. Make sure and join our Discord, discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. And also we have podcasts. All you got to do is just Google Indie Game Business. That stuff will come up. You'll see our networking events, which the next one is coming up within the next few months, I would imagine. The exact yes. date, I can't tell you yet. We don't Stop have secret. one yet, but we will soon. So Jay just ruined it for me. But uh, And thank you once again, Tripwire Presents, for sponsoring us. And thank you, everyone on Discord. Thank you for the questions. Awesome. Everybody have a good week. <laughs>